For May 30th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 152. Bradley Cooper, you come home this instant. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From an undisclosed location in Bangkok, Thailand, I am your host, Matthew Rattler, <laughs> here to overthink the hangover to and all manner of popular culture. Uh, <laughs> the most popular culture in America. I nearly said here from within the super injunction, <laughs> which, is, which is the new name of overthinkingit.com uh, headquarters. I am um, I am uh, Matthew Rather here with the panel and special guest. Actually, Tim, I don't think it's fair to call you special guest anymore because you are becoming kind of a regular, a regular guest, and I am delighted. Yeah, I don't feel special anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've caught up with the the regular kids or something. <laughs> Um, it's like you have a learning disability. It's great. You're no longer special. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't going to be that that obvious. I was doing subtle, subtle. Uh, I feel to, I'm at welcome least. To, uh, welcome to chapter two of Flowers for Algernon. By the way. Uh, just a heads up, it's not going to end well. Oh right, so you you've uplifted me. That's what it is. <laughs> it um, ends in, yeah, uh, it I feel ends. like I've, I've reached what I would consider the Natalie Baseman level. <laughs> oh, wow. I don't know what the next level after that is. Like, you've got to go work through which one of you guys is on the least, and I'll work out like a progression. I'll get back to you on that. Excellent. Um, Yeah. Someone want to do those statistics? Someone want to do the, like, the, you know, the wiki site of the Overthinking It podcast (laughs) that has, has, uh, you know, like, uh, otip.wikia.com that has, you know, transcripts (laughs) and... um, I, I you say know. wiki site, what you <clears throat> mean is trading cards. <laughs> oh, now you're talking my language. <laughs> like like the, the, the overview is a good way to make money, but trading cards, your audience. <laughs> it's a pretty you too it's a, be a powerful pop culture wizard. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to the like, Frank Frazetta-esque renderings of all of us in like cheap oil paintings. It's going to be incredible. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I have to put a uh, well actually on this here. The overview is a pretty mediocre way to make money. <laughs> actually, you don't release it because you overdub yourself for like three weeks. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I missed the, I think I missed the the the, the month of May. Um, I'm very hard to overdub. It's it's hard doing ADR for myself. Let's do the um, let's do the question in honor of the Hangover Two uh, proposal location for an awesome bachelor party um, in the trading card game. I tap Peter Fenzel. <laughs> oh man, untap, upkeep, draw. Uh, so I <laughs> uh, I would I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Three days, uh, once you're on, you can't get off, party Zeppelin. And <laughs> the, here's the part. The party Zeppelin has a, has a rope ladder, and, uh, and, and you can cruise down to the, near the ground at, like, various uh, intervals and let people know via Twitter that, like, you could enter the party Zeppelin via the rope ladder at specific times. But once you enter the party Zeppelin, you're not allowed to leave until the party Zeppelin ends by mooring at the end of its journey to either the top of the Empire State Building or the torch at the top of the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> and in the party Zeppelin, there'll be all manner of parties. 
Um, well, not all manner of party. I don't think we're going to use the Green Party because that's just going to siphon votes away from the other parties. And I'm a little <laughs> when it comes to that sort of thing. I don't want my party to be paralyzed by the Condorcet paradox. Um, but other than that, I feel like uh, a party that's mobile, that's a location. I mean, like, why not? You know, take the take the mountain to Mohammed rather than the. Wait, no, wait. This would be Mohammed going to the mountain in a zeppelin. So never mind. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but yeah, a movable feast in the literal sense. Um, and and I love the idea that it's like once you get in, like you're in. Because this whole thing about bachelor parties is that they're terminal parties, right? Like, even if they aren't really terminal parties, like, that's the culture of a bachelor party, right? Is that it's like a party that signifies an ending of something, and the party goes until the thing is over. So I feel like you can't, like, you know, once you get in, you can't get out. So so it's it's, it's safe to say, then, that there ain't no party like a Zeppelin bachelor party, because getting out of a Zeppelin bachelor party would entail falling to your death. (laughs) definitely and we'd have to have paramedics on board and we have to make sure that we didn't spike their punch (laughs) it's hard it's hard hard to be a real paramedic at a bachelor party right because everyone's just going to assume you're a stripper (laughs) (laughs) guys guys i heard that there was an issue here (laughs) and and you need an examination (laughs) (laughs) who needs an insulin shot of (laughs) funk Uh, oh, the humanity. All right, yeah. moving on to... <laughs> <laughs> moving on in alphabetical order, Joshua McNeil, I tap you for two green mana or something. I don't know. <laughs> I was a junior high schooler the last time I played Magic the Gathering. It's right. still correct. <laughs> so Pete mentioned, uh, you know, Mohammed going to the mountain, and I'd actually, I think I'd want to do my bachelor party in the mountains of Mohammed, um, where uh, I was trying to think of something, you know, like something sexy and fun, but I really think like long term, 50 years later, you're going to want to tell the story of your bachelor party and you're going to want it to be badass and awesome. So I'm thinking sort of those parts of Pakistan that are still under Taliban control. <laughs> <laughs> what did we do last night? <laughs> Secretary is just about this, this no had everything. It, it, it had running water, it had electricity. It was incredible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, the, all of the, the sort of usual bachelor party things are illegal in uh, in that part of the world. So we would have to be really creative. We'd have to be, you know, sort of in shape and, and badass. And I just I feel like we we get uh, you know we could get at least half a podcast out of that once we're done. <laughs> we should totally make a make a, write a script about a bunch of um, Amish kids who go at a bachelor party where they have like a beer. And like it's like the Hangover, but they're discovering that they did a series of extremely tame things that they find kind of shocking. Although the Amish might not be the people to go with for that, but find somebody who's like really sheltered and just be like, you know, dude, you have no idea how much Catan you guys played last night. Like you guys played Catan, you got the longest road, man. You were just like clay, and you were like brick and wood, man, brick and wood the whole time. It was crazy. It was. It was. I've always, I've always thought it'd be really interesting to see like a fundamentalist Mormon bachelor party. Mm-hmm. Like for the third wife. Oh, <laughs> what are they doing at that point? <laughs> like, like for an actual like plug So back in the Disney, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh boy, you know, old ball and chain. What are you going to do with that? You know, last segment of your freedom. I don't know. Is it like are like are, is actual polygamy sort? Is that sort of like Horcruxes, where like your soul gets weaker with each one that you like? Like you have like bachelor party because it becomes sort of proportional as you like invest your your bachelor partiness into like a wider array of of notable objects and locations and strippers. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Is, if you're if you're a polygamist, is uh, visiting a strip club you know twice as morally bad uh, if you have two wives, and and three times as morally bad if you have three wives, because True. you're you're cheating on on you know three women that you're married to, not just one. 
See, that's interesting. Uh, that's interesting because from a utilitarian perspective, you could say yes because you're causing three times the suffering if you're doing it to three people who are, have equivalent reactions to you, right? Although two, no two women have the same reaction to anything because we're diverse and multi, multifaceted human beings. So I'm sure it would balance out a little bit. On the other hand, like four nights a week, they're used to you looking at someone else's tits. Right? Oh, you have to go R-rated. You have to go R-rated with the TV Chili shot. peppers. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Habitual reflex now. Um, I wasn't the, uh, even around when Eudora was around, but, you know. Is it, oh, mean, yeah, the chili peppers. That's right. Oh, you weren't born yet when they made Eudora? Oh. <laughs> I Let may be you. exaggerating. You may be eight years old. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to tell anybody that we brought an eight-year-old on our bachelor party podcast. <laughs> Once you have a British accent, everyone assumes you're really refined and sophisticated and mature. So you know you can. Yeah, you're playing the uh, the Pokemon's cards, not the Magic: The Gathering cards. Not that. <laughs> so, what I, 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 I did once go to a birthday party and had forgotten my ID, and I was wearing a uh, black tie. Um, on account of my friend asking me to come what I would normally wear to parties. And at the most parties I'd been to that time, I was wearing black tie. So I jokingly went to black tie. The guy says to me, you don't have ID. I can't let you in. I'm like, look at me. Just look at me. I am wearing black tie. Do you think I am trying to sneak in? And he was like, yeah, you're right. You know, <laughs> that's maybe the stuff you were get away with. Maybe he thought you were a spy. Just by being refined. <laughs> that's you were trying to like exact like a high society jewel heist that night. That's fantastic, uh, I, I, too, I because like, to... American bouncers do not have that level of common sense. With American bouncers, you get a lot of the sir, 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 <laughs> uh, sir. You know, um, the, like that. You can't. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Those are those the rules. You know what I mean? You can't. Although uh, in America. And America, to be fair, an American party, if you show up wearing black tie, you're probably trying to sneak in for some reason, right? Because like, <laughs> we don't, we're not that classy. Like, we wouldn't even know the difference between, like, you know, smart casual and business casual. It's, like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I have to go on Wikipedia to, like, learn my basic Emily Post sometimes. It's not. Yeah, you, show up in, you show up well, in black tie, you're probably one of them there jerks what thinks he's better than we is. <laughs> right. Well, yes, that's true. I am, but hey, you know, wanna... <laughs> sir, <Or a> waiter, <laughs> sir. <laughs> well, we're heading into election season soon. We're all going to compete to see who is the like least remarkable real American of all of us, <laughs> with like the least education and like least knowledge of how to run a government. <laughs> like we're going to have that race to the bottom. Just stand so. for government, ergo the most qualified. Person. Yeah. You should hire me because I hate this job and everything it stands for with every fiber <laughs> of my being, and I'm totally, completely uh, ignorant to everything that it involves. <laughs> So yes, never mind. I should twenty twelve. We'll have um, time. Exactly. Uh, Doctor Schechner, Doctor David Schechner, paging Doctor David Schechner. I tell oh, you. Ah, excellent, uh, Pikachu. Uh, <clears throat> uh, so, so the, the Turks have a have a great saying. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up Turkishness in Turkey, as is my habit on these podcasts. Uh, because so they have this this great saying, "Bekarlık um, Sultanluk," which is. Uh, you know, bachelorhood is sultanhood, and so I'm, I'm just going to take that at face value. And my, bat, my my theoretical bachelor party, which will resemble nothing like my actual bachelor party, at which several members of this podcast were in attendance. I'm looking your way, Tim. Um, <laughs> Crazy you know, so I, I'm, I'm basically, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna demand some giant like marble lined court and like an entire series of, of, of you know say 18th century uh middle eastern uh, musicians to sort of regale me with you know long form uh aleatoric music 
Uh, there'll be belly dancers. And at the end of the whole thing, I'm going to get into like an ill-advised um, treaty with Hungary and having to <laughs> split up all my assets amongst my like, closest European allies. <laughs> oh, man. Did you? Did, yeah. That's, 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 tricky. that's when you jazz on the tats. <laughs> I guess that kind of works, right? Because, you know, at the end of the or normal bachelor party, you're used to, like, no longer having uh, nearly the amount of wealth that you used to have beforehand. That's true. Yeah. That's definitely true. And then most bachelor parties do center around some manner of very frustrating Dardanelles or Bosporus, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, like, like, you know, you go in there thinking you're going to see the Bosporus, but you never really do. No, no, no. Straight, you think you're there's, there's no straight. there's no passage to the Black Sea in the Champagne Room. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Excellent, uh, Mister Swan. What do you expect me to do? No, um, we uh, in honor of your regular guestness, we're not saving you for the end. We're putting you in alphabetical order. So, Timothy Swan, I choose you. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, I agree. The, the Pokemon thing is probably more familiar to me than the magic thing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Again, showing my age. Um, I, I would have to pick the frozen Galilean moon of Europa. Because wow. I like nice. the idea of having... Someone's kind of... got a methane habit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in the bit under the frozen ice where there's the water and the life and stuff anyway i like the idea of having kind of this crowning human achievement of going to the one other place in the solar system that might secure life and then just kind of drinking for three days and then coming home because i think that's a, that's a good metaphor for uh, european uh, stag weekends uh, because we don't have bachelor parties we have stag nights because uh, everyone has to be an animal just because um, the bachelorette <laughs> parties are hen nights, uh. which is interesting because stags and hens, you know, are known to be breeding compatible. Um, yep. But anyway. Um, oh, yeah. And how? <laughs> like across Europe, people take cheap flights to beautiful cities with hundreds of years of culture and then drink cheap beer and trash the place. And lots of places now are starting to ban British stag parties. Or just huh. any stag parties, but mostly, I think, British and Irish ones. God, so it's I'm, just like, I no, stop coming to the old town of Prague. Stop coming <laughs> to Riga. Just stay away. We want <laughs> cultured British people. But uh, I don't know if it works. So, yes, I'd like to go somewhere really, really hard to get to and worth getting to and then completely squander it. Because mm-hmm. that, that seems to be the impression of what you should do with a stag party. That's Columbus. Columbus did that, right? <laughs> Europa, Europa presumably hasn't banned you yet. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just like you know, micro oh, micro or, or, or organisms, or or maybe some blind fish. I, I had like some predictions of the future book, and it was just like on Europa there will be blind fish with no eyes because they live under the ice. I'm just like, okay. <laughs> You're totally going to get like a photobond by some xenobacteria. <laughs> no, that is quite hard to avoid, really, isn't it? Your book is, your book is, over, is overlooking the possibility of bioluminescence, actually. <laughs> it's just a world of deep sea anglerfish. I like. I, I think there should be a. Uh, you know, I think there should be a, a Yakov Smirnov from the frozen moons of Jupiter, where it's like. <laughs> On Europa, fish, fish, you, or fish, bioluminous, you. What, what a crazy moon of gas giant. I also love how it just happens to be called Europa, since that's where he would have been going anyway. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, is it in the, the European Union? Yeah. It will be. 
Let's just put it that way. <laughs> It'll so, be in before Turkey makes it, too, which pisses me off. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't remember the conditions. Ser- have you heard how Serbia, they found their their one remaining like major war criminal because basically Europe was like, well, once you've done that, you can come in. It's like, okay, we've known where he's been like for the last 15 years. We'll hand him over now. Now you're yeah. offering us EU at last. Now we was, Yeah, exactly. We were holding this guy in reserve as a bargaining chip. He's in a barrel somewhere. I, it's, not as, it's not as fun as Razdan Karazdic, you know, who I never thought I'd say that because the guy's not renowned for fun. He's renowned for genocide. But they found him with a giant beard practicing homeopathic medicine and being really good at it. Like, he had an impressive kind of customer satisfaction rate and doing kind of holistic massage and stuff, and it's just like... <laughs> Speaking of bachelor parties... <laughs> unless, unless I get a... But on Milosevic, I am not content with my, with my bachelor party. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a happy ending. <laughs> it's... It ends. It ends in the Hague with a trial for war. That's the hangover part three. There we go. Yeah. Actually, they may go. Uh, they may go to Amsterdam. I've heard uh, on the blogs on the Hollywood blogs. I've heard that part three may be in Amsterdam, and you know there's going to be a part three after this uh, this opening weekend made you know hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it, it made. It totally needs to be on the Planet of the Apes or something like that. Would be awesome. <laughs> They're like, oh no, we've, sorry, we blew up the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to get back in time for the wedding. All right. Uh, so um, before Josh said, uh, before Josh said, Taliban controlled uh, Afghanistan or um, you know uh, Pakistan. Sorry. Um, the my answer was going to be Mecca, but then mm-mm. yeah, but then I thought uh, then I thought that's really insensitive and will probably get us all um, get us all killed, right, or something. That's also insensitive to assume that every Muslim yeah, yeah, yeah. is going to try to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, I thought, well, hey, rip on, rip on your own damn religion. So um, we are going to totally trash the Sistine Chapel uh, and St. Peter's Square <laughs> yes. in the Vatican. We are going to uh, rage, rage uh, through the Eternal City, ending with um, a, a all-night kegger in the Sistine yeah. Chapel. And uh, we will not... Hey, is that green smoke coming out of the chimney? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need to hotbox the College of Cardinals right there. <laughs> Man, I did so many keg stands when I was in the College of Cardinals. <laughs> but, oh, I've just got to be... You've got to be careful that you drink beer and not wine, because the Pope could just kind of do a mass a mass bless, and then you know it would all transubstantiate. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, uh, yeah. Time to well, hangover movies are sort of a confession of a sort, right? They're sort of like a sacramental confession where we go back through everything that we've done and kind of absolve ourselves or get absolution from it. Yeah, I suppose. It, I mean, it's it's um it's a way of structuring it. Oh, wow, the Vatican is my answer. That's totally less offensive. Um, <laughs> we yeah we, right. That's a way of, of of structuring a narrative. I mean, a lot of a lot of straightforward narratives are itineraries anyway, which is to say they're they're a catalog, a catalog of events you know arranged in time, and so uh, so. So sure, like the idea that we've done we've done something bad, and the way to the way to atone for it is to kind of work back through it. Is um, it it's actually less a I mean to kind of revisit the site of the trauma, right? It's less a a, a Catholic uh, kind of religious idea and more a psychoanalytic idea, isn't it? That we like yeah. we sort of re-experience yeah. the trauma that uh, that left us in this pickle, and by doing that, we can we can sort of find a way out. 
Yeah. That actually is pretty cool because it reminds me of, of procedurals, like police procedurals. And it hadn't occurred to me that, you know, the police procedural is like the, the current psychological drama. Like that's the sure. genre, sort of the well-made psychological drama is now the police procedural. And it hadn't occurred to me that like going back to the scene of the crime and looking for clues is so closely tied to notions of psychotherapy and how uh, – and, and so the, the sort of form and function work together very well in that instance. Definitely. Yeah, it's – I mean it's uh, – hmm. you know, it's funny. I it, in college, I took a literature class where um, we read uh, Sherlock Holmes' short stories side by side with Freud's case histories, and mm. and the parallels are not um, <laughs> are actually not that hard to draw. You know what I mean? In terms of kind of uh, there's a there's a body of evidence, whether it's the you know the spoken associations of a uh, free associations of a psychoanalytic patient or um, you know stuff in the world. And, yeah. uh, like, there's a, there's a kind of interpreter of, uh, you know, of trauma, right? And uh, an interpreter of, uh, of a, past, a past trauma that sort of bring things, brings things to light. And, it, I mean, in the case of Sherlock Holmes, like, literally to light, because there's a, there's a lot of, like, dark, you know, alleyways and sort of a torch or, you know, do you see it? Do you see it? Like, it's, it's, it's mediated through tropes of seeing, uh, seeing in sight. Um, yeah. So uh, have right. have you uh, read the point seven percent solution or seen the film? Uh, it's a book where Freud and Holmes team up, basically. <laughs> oh, I thought it was going to be a homeopathy book by a war criminal. <laughs> no, it's about it's seven percent. Not point seven percent is the percentage of which uh, kind of dilution Holmes takes his cocaine, and it implies that Reichenbach falls is not actually a battle with Moriarty, but instead Holmes goes to battle his addiction to cocaine with the help of Freud. Um, it's like celebrity and, rehab, uh, you know, Sherlock's Holmes style. Well, this is the thing: is I would quite like to see a Hangover prequel where Freud is there with them, you know going back through the stuff and just kind of nodding knowingly at various points, you know. <laughs> mm, yes. Mm, yes. I was wondering if you would read, um, have you ever read uh, Freud's case histories and the Sherlock Holmes stories at the same time uh, in the dark while high? They really think, oh, <laughs> it's, amazing. it's eerie. Yeah, it's, uh, there's a, I think, yeah, the Flaming Lips made a record of it. Yeah, let's get into that again. Let's explain what that is all over again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But homeopathy would be much wor- much less. Than- By the way, I love that you said not. I say the I say aughts all the time in referring to the decade between uh, uh, 2001 and 2011. And I describe it always as the like aughts, like aught five, aught six, and whatnot. Um, so I love noughts and aughts and, and all that other stuff and zeds. Those that's sweet. We need a class this join up, man. We need, we need to like include some more of that kind of uh, you know numbering and lettering that that uh, from the mother country. It's good stuff. Oh, I, that's good I have stuff. to say, my my favorite joke in Shakespeare revolves around two different meanings of the word naught. Um, mm-hmm. It's in Richard III, and I can't remember who the characters are, but that it's like the captains of the King's Guard, and one says, uh, oh, I've heard you've had something to do with the famous prostitute, Mistress Shaw. And he's like, I've had naught with an O to do with Mistress Shaw. Nothing. And the one says, oh, naught with an A, i.e. naughtiness. And it's just like, that joke needs so much explaining in order to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> Once you've got all the parts... It's a work of genius. I think that's right. what much of Shakespeare's humor is sadly like now. You've got Actually, to really work. I'm, 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 I'm told that, um, that the title of Much Ado About Nothing is, is a similar sort of pun. Yes. Right? Yep. That, that, the that, is, that the, zero, the zero or the nothing was sort of a common street slang for, um, for the orifice of the female reproductive uh, tract. Yeah, yeah. It's a joke. It's a joke that's made... 
uh, am I echoing? Yes, through your headphone checker. Um, oh, the, damn it. Uh, <laughs> It's a joke that's made explicitly in Hamlet in the play scene when um, uh, Hamlet proposes to Ophelia, you know, shall I lie upon your lap? Um, uh, and he says, no, my lord. And she says, no, my lord. He says, I mean, my head upon your lap. She says, yes, my lord. Did you think I meant country matters? Hamlet says. And uh, Ophelia replies, I-, I think nothing, my lord. Hamlet says, there's a thought. There's a fair thought to lie between maids' legs. No thing. Zing! <laughs> that guy's a regular like, carrot top. You mean my vagina? <laughs> yeah. And like, she's like, how come this, this part is so demeaning? Like, people are going to write a lot of graduate theses about it. I'm going to go drown for no reason. No. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. Um, so, so, okay. So, we talked about... Um, uh, we, we're talking about uh, sort of the we just mentioned the the amount of backstory that you need to get involved in a particular sort of of highbrow story or highbrow joke. This seems like a way to segue into the Hangover because, uh, as it has been well remarked all over the place, Hangover Two is like quite a bit more than derivative of Hangover One. It is in fact like very close to a like scene for scene remake. I mean, not literally, but like surprisingly close to a scene for scene remake of the hangover one just like everything transposed and new jokes involved so structurally it's like very very similar it's Um, it's like it's like the 12 stations of the hangover one yeah it's like like, like ritualistically forced to go through and revisit each of the events of the first film yeah which i think is kind of i mean it makes sense i think it's kind of on purpose and they all do reference it in the beginning when there there are jokes that they make that you wouldn't get at all unless you've seen the first movie right uh and then they reference oh we've done this all again this has all happened again the characters are talking about it like they're aware that all the events of the first movie happened and happened fairly recently um yeah but like if you think about it the movie is in Medius race Right, so you you're going through for most of the movie events that have happened previously to the sort of current time frame that you're experiencing the movie as an audience member, and they're going back and they're reconstructing things that happened previously even then. So you're two degrees removed from what the sort of current time would be, and then all you're doing by having the Hangover Two is you're adding a third layer, which is like we're also going back and revisiting these past events, which for you happen to be in a past movie, uh, and, and we're we're re-remembering them and re-examining them at the same time as we are traveling back to, to reinforce our memories at the same time as we're telling the story by going backwards and talking about it. So I'm a big, I, I mean, I, I like the idea that it's on purpose and that it's something that they're doing kind of to make a point. Um, not to be right, but because it's sort of interesting and gives them something to do while they're telling the jokes and kind of something for the movie to be about, right? Uh, which it kind of needs to be about. Uh, although this movie's about a couple of things. But I don't know, what do you guys, did you guys, I know that Matt, you, you saw it, right? Matt, I Matt, saw it uh, you saw it today. Cool, cool. I mean, did you remark upon this or notice it, or did you have a different feeling about it? I noticed the preponderance of Wang. <laughs> no, his name is Chow. No, no, no. Um, no, that's a bad joke. No, there's a lot. Of that. I was describing it to a, a female friend of mine, and I was like, yeah, you know, I mean, like, it's a fun movie, and it tells a lot of good jokes. It's kind of derivative, uh, but it has some cool meta stuff, too, and, and there's a lot of penis. Like, and sometimes it's surprise penis, and surprise penis is either the best or worst kind of penis, depending upon your tastes. Uh, and, and she was like, noted, you had me at penis. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, so I mean, it's, it, there's definitely, it's like Watchmen in that regard, where it's like, go for the remake of a beloved property, like, stay for the full frontal male nudity. Like, um, uh, which I, I mean, that's important. 
Blue. Yeah, it's not as blue in this movie. Although they, yeah, it's a blue movie. Blue in a different sense. Exactly. I exactly. Uh, I I um I actually appreciate that because you know R-rated movies there's so much female TNA that uh you know it's nice it's nice to see the male form objectified a little bit even if even if it it at least in one in one sense it's uh it it's just propping up a uh, propping up an offensive stereotype right. Um, I mean, yeah, in one case, there is an offensive. I mean, the, someone mentioned this when we were discussing and preparing for the podcast that uh, I think it was Tim, right? That the movie is broadly perceived as being very racist and, and prejudiced against t- Thailand. Um, I would add that it's very prejudiced against, I would specify that it's very prejudiced against Bangkok, very specifically, because there's sort of like good Thailand, which is full of rich people who are professionals and really like sort of stereotypical competitive Asians uh, who play cello and want to be surgeons and stuff and have all this money to have a fancy wedding on the beach. And then there's like Bangkok, which is um, sort of a metaphor for um, a kind of state of, of, of like non-being, I like guess state of like, well, you're being, it's like being without identity is what happens. It's like you descend into Bangkok and maybe you don't come out. Uh, right. Because, uh, cause it, it sort of subsumes you and, and has all the, you know, all the things you expect to see in Bangkok. Right. right. Like, the, 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 uh, the phrase that's repeated in the movie is, I mean, when they're looking for, they're looking for a, a person and the, um, the phrase that keeps being repeated is Bangkok has him now. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, 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 wow, the, that's that's dark. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like, it's a pretty dark movie at times. Like it's much darker than Hangover One and much gorier too. Like there's like, you know, things that get cut off. The last off film that and... had us was The Matrix, right? <laughs> oh, The Matrix has it now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the I, I yeah. guess we should uh, we should issue a blanket spoiler alert so that we can actually talk about what happens in in the film because actually the goriness of it, Pete, is actually something that that I'm interested in and would like yeah. to chat about just just for a second. So you know, consider this your blanket spoiler warning for The Hangover Two. Um, the the pleasures of this movie are not necessarily the pleasures of like narrative surprise. So I, I think you're safe listening to this podcast, even if you haven't, uh, even if you haven't seen the film, uh, yet, but like the same so- things happen as in the hangover one. Like, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, you ruined the ending. <laughs> right. Absolutely. It's a, uh, they, they, uh, you know, move from childhood to adulthood yet again. Um, when when is someone Pete? What, when is someone going to make a movie about adult relationships that is not a movie about like coming of age uh, somehow, you know, or coming into your own? In, oh, in some I was going to say Harry Potter Part Two because <laughs> I think it's our best hope, but I don't think they're actually going to get that far as the movie is coming. Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess we'll have to wait for a Babylon Five theatrical feature or something along those lines. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like right after the uh, the two D animated movie that's not about the power of friendship. Yes, exactly, exactly. I, or yeah, we're about the superhero movie where like um, he doesn't fall in love with someone for no reason. Yeah. Although I'm, that has happened a couple of times, so I don't want to get too rag on it too much. But yeah, it's it's after they make the superhero movie that doesn't turn the superhero into a Christ figure at some point. I mean, I, I made that point when my my Up article from back when Up ran, which is uh, that movies because Up is like that where there isn't really a coming of age story. Um, I mean, there is a kid, but it's not really about him. But the issue is that like you know, coming of age has a, a, a sort of in, a normativeness to it. It has like an, uh, a process, and so if you can't actually come up with a way of confronting the difficulties of being an adult and and like confronting the sort of you know existential realities of adulthood, which is like, you're grown up now, good luck. Uh, um, uh, you, now, Pete, I, I disagree with you, right? 
like I think the like the old man's character goes through exactly that that process of revelation, but it's not you're coming into adulthood; it's you're coming into widowerhood, right? Like this, you you have to get used to the idea that your wife is dead, and this is your this is your life after the passage of your wife. I guess. I mean, the other, the other I, mean, I don't want to get too down into, into up right now, but the other thing is that, like, <laughs> it depends on how you see the bringing of the house to the falls, right? Is that sort of like an act of completion? Is it an act of closure? Is it like, is that the thing that he's trying to do? Like, like what is he, what is the goal of the movie, right? And, and uh, if, if the point is, is it important it, that the house rests on the falls or not, right? And, and when it's on the falls, is it sort of like away from where it needs to be? Um, like, is it something we can dismiss and move past? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like the whole the whole sequence down there is is an embracing of the things that he at some point strove for greatly, and now in his old age, no longer feels that you know, feels that he somehow missed out upon. Right? Right. Like, yeah. you know, he encounters his boyhood idol. He can bring the sort of spirit of his dead wife to this place that they always yearn to be. He can, you know, take on a child as his own, which is another great. Which is a big thing because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like this is this is like the classic, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, coming of age right. The sort of liminal passage that a person goes through. They have to address and embrace the things that were before, and and you know, pull them to a close so that they can move on to the next part. Mm, interesting. Cool. 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 I, I, I was going to suggest that maybe the place that these um, movies uh, that don't just tell that same story come, might come from is not the USA, and I guess especially Hollywood. I, I don't want to condemn the whole USA. Uh, you know, most of the stuff no, you watch, go, which go, breaks. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, you, you, you owe us uh, a lot of backdated tax as well. Anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, I believe, I believe you, owe, you owe us some representation as well, sir. <laughs> you, you can have it. You can have some MPs. Just send them over when you're ready. Anyway. <laughs> hey, this is Memorial Day, pal. This is when we remember the people who fought you guys and everyone else, and then also fought alongside you guys. A lot, but, but do not then, remember we did at our bachelor party. Oh, do you remember yeah. them both at the same time? That's crazy. Do you not just remember the ones who fought with us on Veterans Day and all the rest on Memorial Day? Something. Memorial like that. Day is just for the ones who died. That's all, and so it doesn't really matter why they died. I mean, it's just like. Oh, okay. if, we actually, I've actually run into this with some publication I've worked on outside of overthinking it, where like people, and I didn't work on the publication directly, but it was my, my team, people put out a publication that was like, okay, Memorial Day is about remembering our veterans. And the veterans got upset and wrote in and were like, it's not about veterans, it's about dead people. You know, like, like that's what it's about. It's not a day to celebrate, it's like a sad day. Uh, it is really, yeah, but it it is, actually, I mean, it, it is because the dead people are always already veterans, aren't they? Because well, yeah. I mean, else, it's not how else, all they, how else did they get dead? I mean, except by you know dying heroically, uh, serving our country. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, it is actually it is really cool to think about that we're doing we're releasing our Hangover Two podcast on Memorial Day, like the Day of Remembering. That is actually really cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the nice. kind of thing that you know really catches on and makes you think that there are significant things well, driving we can, it. So we're gonna. We're gonna we're going to re-release this for Yom Kippur too, right? <laughs> this is actually—I mean, this is very interesting because it's uh, part of the part of the um, the question of the Hangover Two is—is is Ed Helms a man? I mean, right? Is he a real man? You know, like is he? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's, it's a question that's often asked in Bangkok, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, uh, n- no joke. That's like the tranny hooker is one of the wangs that you see uh, yep. repeatedly in the film. Um, yep. 
<laughs> Which and I thought they weren't going to go there. I thought they were going to frame it so that it was hidden behind, you know, Bradley Bradley Cooper's, you know, uh, enormous hairdo. But no, <laughs> um, it's uh, it's you know the full Monty. Um, but is Ed Helms a man? Can he like come of age? Can he stand up to his uh, domineering Asian father-in-law? You know, <laughs> and he has no. I mean, he has no uh, parent figures in in the wedding. It's uh, y- it's his Asian wife's wife's um, father-in-law who who matters. But there's a sense, uh, you know, there's a sense in the movie that like um, something is unleashed. That there's kind of an inner uh, what demon, I guess, like that that is sort of unleashed, and that through the process of memory, um, uh, you kind of discover what you did last night. So that is to say, the the way. Self-discovery happens through memory. You know what I mean? Through the, through, not through kind of thinking about it in a rational way or kind of discovering something about yourself and then going out intentionally and doing something. Self-discovery happens when you do a lot of stuff unintentionally and then the next day in the aftermath of this, realize what you did and so realize the kind of person you are, right? Which is a different, that's a different model of, of sort of self-discovery. It's a kind of, it's a kind of traumatic self-discovery rather than, uh, it's a self-discovery kind of in, in the ashes, you know what I mean? Rather than, rather than self-discovery being the gateway to heroic action, the heroic action happens and the self-discovery happens later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, that's what, that's what like the liquor companies are advertising all the time, right? Like the the idea that you're sort of you're going to be your real self if you drink our you know liquor, which the most interesting man in the world also drinks, and that's like the real you. And you may not remember it that night, um, but you will. You know, like the next day, you're going to be a better person for having drunk the Bacardi. Sure. Well, the, I mean, how, like the how, the how, fan, how fantastic how, would it the, be? The, the, how, that, that, go on. Um, the relation, the relationship of things to techno- of these things to technology is is non trivial because without like cell phone cameras and whatnot, the uh, there would be no record of these things. And living in a living in a world where you know everyone carries a high definition camera in their pocket, um, that's not all. Tranny Hooker, the uh, <laughs> uh, li- living in that world is what makes things like this possible. Because the, the, there's a big sequence at the end where they look through the cell phone pictures of the night of debauchery, uh, and you see more Wang. But you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up a couple things because um, I think it, this is this is good stuff. But I have a couple of questions, and the, the first is, of course, um, if the technology and the memory and rediscovering the memory, yeah. It, it, I like the idea that you're sort of dealing with the consequences of what happened, and, and that sort of informs who you are. But, like, they don't see the pictures of it until the movie is already over, right? So it's not like the, the pictures are what sort of guide them to their discovery of self. The pictures are something that's there as, as the sort of tentament, testament to what happened previously, but it's like they've already made their, move, their, their journey by the time the pictures come into play. So it's not like, okay, we have all these records, and they provide us proof with who we, of who we are. In fact, it almost feels kind of Blade Runner-ish to me. And that's the sort of, for me, that's the sort of quintessential philosophical question of the hanging over movies is if you have a wonderful time but you don't remember it like did you have the wonderful time yeah, like yeah, was that's, that's, that in fact you it's kind of um, what i was wondering like like how much is this movie just you know an explicit retelling of the existential paradox right like what would jean paul Sartre's the hangover look like just like wow you know <laughs> i don't remember anything from last night well then whatever people tell you you did last night clearly doesn't exist uh because you don't remember it and therefore it doesn't exist in your universe Right, and so no, they look no, for... Nobody shot an Arab, right? Whatever. You know, <laughs> who knows? Well, here's the thing. 
there's a, there's a Middle Eastern theme to this whole podcast, isn't there? <laughs> this, this is, I think, where it's important that we get involved in the in the gore, uh, the gore aspect of the movie, the yeah. things that get chopped off and stuff like this. Because I think the Hangover Part Two does raise the stakes in a, in a number of places as to the stuff that's happened previously. Right. And one of the ways that it raises the stakes is uh is that people are are in. I get the sense that people are in a greater degree of danger in this movie. That like their sort of lives are at stake to a greater degree in Hangover Part Two than they were in Hangover Part One. Right. I mean, yes, there were like gangsters and ultimatums. And there was like possibility of people getting kidnapped and killed, but this movie, like, I feel like they really throw it in your face a lot more. Like, I think one, there's a scene where Bradley Cooper is trying to assure Ed Helms that everything is going to be okay, right? And it's like we're just going to go back and everything's going to be fine, and then he gets shot, right? And it's this sort of like, no, because of what happened, like everything is not going to be okay. Um, and, and I always, I always. Um, try to associate this, if you if you compare it to sort of a Camus-esque existential viewpoint, I, I tend to look at it as more of an existential viewpoint via Hemingway, where it's like, the things, at least when I read Hemingway, I'm not sure about the critical consensus on this, but to me, in Hemingway, the things that are real are, are these things that create kind of like, uh, like physical and biological realities that you can't escape, and people build their lives around those things, right? Like, the, bu- the booze is such a presence, right? And the sort of like, and he, you know, the hunt, and like all these other, these things that are, have to what, to the writer, the experience of the writer as sort of biological undeniability. And then the sort of uh, cultural artifice that's on top of that is the stuff that's like less immediate, and that's what you sort of cut out to try to get to the root of things. Um, but it's like, okay, uh, who are you? And, and they're trying to rediscover who they are, and, um, but there's this sense of like, no, you don't just get to go walk away from it and pretend that it wasn't you, right? Because there are going to be not just consequences, not in the case of like every man, we're going to be judged for it, but like there are like realities that about what has happened that even though they aren't part of what you remember, like are real uh, and they are like bleeding and they need to be put on ice. There are, <laughs> right. I mean, <laughs> <Personally it's>... attached. <laughs> um, uh, right. This is, I mean, like okay, so Bradley Cooper gets gets shot. The uh, the cello playing, you know, Stanford yep. pre med brother um, gets his finger chopped off in in the chase scene, um, driving through the uh, you know streets of Bangkok. There's there's a pig carcass hanging <laughs> inexplicably yeah. over the road from a market, and they. Um, uh... Wait, are you so kidding? Cooking, or, or do we buy like a stock footage soundtrack album? <laughs> I, is going to be like, like a bunch of cash registers clanging after this? Uh... I thought someone was relieving themselves. That's, yeah. that's, that's the that's... water I heard. And it's, guys, Can't... that's not... Well, well, it, well, it wasn't Dave, I guess. <laughs> Maybe I'm just covering my tracks. Is it, uh, <laughs> if you are going to prepare dinner or relieve yourself <laughs> while on the podcast, please go on mute. Please call one. Two, five. By the way, I, I, before we move on with the serious stuff, fat jog zero one. That's two or three two five six four zero one. Okay, so um, by, by the way, they, be, they drive before we move straight on into the, pig carcass. Pig carcass. Sorry, Dave. No, it's all right. I'm going to go back to muting mode now. They drive straight into a pig carcass. In oh, wait, actually, that. No. <laughs> you like resent the fact that you can't have the attention all the time. We all feel that way sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. yeah. But yeah, yeah definitely. So they drive into a pig carcass. Yeah, they dri- they drive into a pig carcass, and and it's entirely gratuitous. I mean, it serves no, it serves no purpose other than momentary a, a, a momentary thrill. And you, you got to wonder why. Um, <laughs> you got to wonder why that's there. But there there is this there is this sense in, in which 
I think it is raising the stakes to say that um, the experiences of our lives leave leave sort of marks on the body. And like uh, uh, Ed Helms, and this is in the the promotional stuff. Ed Helms wakes up with a tattoo. So like yeah. in the night of debauchery, he he. He got a tattoo, and this is very different from him losing a tooth in the first movie, which can be sort of replaced prosthetically, right? Yeah. Like, he doesn't still have the broken tooth or the missing tooth uh, from the first movie. That's That's been fixed. That, yeah. like, consequence has been um, worked around well, somehow. It, and it's beyond his personal, like, professional skills to fix. Yeah. But, like, the fact that he's missing a tooth in the first one, I think, like, carries a special resonance because he himself is a dentist. Yeah, like like if you if you were like a, a laser specialist dermatologist, then you know it would be sort of the equivalent yeah. situation here. <laughs> well, the significance of the tattoo is that he has the same tattoo on his face that Mike Tyson has on his face, right? Yeah, and, that like yeah. and also that like latter day Mike Tyson got on his face like after he was in prison, and so it's a recollection of Mike Tyson's participation in the first movie. Sure, um, yeah, and uh, but it is yeah it is it is different yeah, and that is I mean, well that's probably something I won't spoil, but um mm-hmm. the. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he's but Ed Helms. The, think about the part, the pig moment for a second, and I'm, I don't mean to interrupt. But Ed Helms is like covered in the guts of the pig, and the and the shot, like the money shot, isn't hitting the pig carcass. It's like Ed Helm covered in pig guts with his like tattooed face facing the camera, like screaming, like full on losing his ish, screaming. Um, and we know throughout the course of the movie that Ed Helms has had like bodily fluids flung at him and all sorts of uh, other sorts of ways, and that like there's a lot of physical marking that takes place of all of them and but mostly of at helms um and i think that that sort of is is showing this kind of physical view into the self um anyway were you were you were you saying that we're yeah, saying something yeah, else yeah exactly it? it's very i mean people get people get spit on they get all kinds of all kinds of bodily fluids i mean like yeah you know the the um the flip side of the gore or i should say entail entailed by the gore is uh, a lot of <laughs> entrails this is an entrailed by the gore oh, oh. <laughs> Zing. That was a, a transatlantic <laughs> pun. Oh, uh, that that joke was awful. Awful. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Try the veal. <laughs> or, or the tripe. <laughs> nice. Nice. Uh, um, is is that uh, when there's a lot of when there's a lot of gore, there's a lot of physical violence. There's a lot of like bodily fluids. You know what yeah. I mean? There's a there's a lot of and there's a lot of kind of dealing. There's a lot of dealing with the body as meat. We've talked a little bit about the. Um, we've talked a little bit about the. Uh, last week we talked in, with respect to bridesmaids about comedy being the rebellion of the body against forces that would kind of constrain it, social yeah. forces, cultural forces that would constrain it. And the obvious way to go in a, in a bachelor party movie is the rebellion of the body against monogamy, right? Which is you know which is a, a socially imposed um, constraint. But that's actually not where this this movie I, takes actually, it. I mean, no, that's that's an interesting point to make, though. Um, it, in, namely, that there's so much like physicality in this process, and that you know, anthropologically speaking, like a lot of the major uh, rites of passage are enacted in one way or another through some sort of bodily mutification, uh, 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 or, or a mutilation, rather. Sorry, or the uh, you mean the, that's right? Yeah, when, when your friend just tells you to shut the hell up on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, your quote unquote friend. Okay, or um, or the sort of metaphoric uh, mutilation of the body, right? Like the yeah. you know, the consumption of the body of Christ, uh, the removing of one's foreskin, um, yep. you know, ritualistic tattoos, ritualistic piercings, things of this mm-hmm. nature. Um, yeah, yeah. And that it's often, you know, it, it's it's the sort of simultaneous 
reminder of your physical existence and also in the process of transforming the physicality, transforming your place in the, in the world, transforming your existence yeah. itself, right? That's, well, I mean, that's like um, – it's an inside-outside dichotomy, right? Like it's a yeah. – yeah. I mean to keep going with my, my uh, friends yeah. at Catholic. It's, it's, it's the point of liminality, right? It's, it's the point where you're neither here nor there. Well, it, right. Like it's an out, outward sign of uh, – it's an outward sign of an inward reality. You, you know what I mean? That is to say, it's sacramental. It's a sign of a of a greater spiritual reality, and it's a, it's a. I mean, you said reminder, but it's also it's not just a reminder. It's a signal to the people around you that you've gone through you've gone through this thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, so I, and I'll actually this also brings up because um, you brought up that definition of comedy, and and when I um, am working as a as a coach for 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 comedian type people, I always use a different definition of comedy that I, I mean, it's not comprehensive, but I like, I feel like it encapsulates things uh, quickly, like a sort of aphorism about comedy, not really a definition in the formal sense, but that like drama is about things changing and comedy is about things that stay the same or that come around and reconfirm themselves. Um, and I like this idea of, I really like this idea of this movie as a sort of uh, existential collapse where the characters, because of the unreliability of memory and because of this sort of uh, the phenomenology of the self, right, like lose themselves in this in this night, and that they're trying, and they are faced with this really unpleasant uh, notion about the sort of themselves and their participation in their own lives, um, and and to, which of course has implications about their participation in their future lives. So it's like, okay, well, if this thing happened and like I wasn't there for it, like what am I? And, and that's sort of like, well, when I go back, like what am I going to be? And Am I not going to be there for it in the same sense that I wasn't there for this? I'm not going to be there for my marriage because it could be somebody else. It's not going to be me. Um, these movies are also about the characters like refining themselves again, like reconfirming their identities to agree that it's sort of like comforting and, and funny. Right, and it's like every time, and this is what's great about the Alan character in these movies, and why he's so important. I mean, the first he he strikes a chord in the first movie, but he's not really in a ton of the first movie. I, he's just sort of like a comic relief character, and he only really made a big impression on people, at least in my opinion, because Zach Galifianakis like sort of became a thing. Uh, but in this movie, he's in much more of the movie, and he's kind of a, he's a much more important character in the movie um, because he has like this really really strong aberration. Uh, aberrational self like this this strong sense of self that is like totally weird and different um and, and so we whenever you go back and have a moment with alan it's funny because like there's something about alan that sort of alan thinks is obvious or, or like makes sense to alan or makes alan feel better but that is also like totally weird so it's non-threatening because we're seeing alan find himself and reconfirm himself um but it's weird so the, the biggest example of this i think is um there's a moment in Hangover Part 2, and I love that it's called Part 2 because it implies that the two movies are supposed to be together and it's not just a, a repetition. Um, but there's a moment in, in Hangover Part 2 where, I kid you not, they literally go to a Buddhist monastery and conduct a meditation to try to get in touch with their memories of the previous night. right? And they, they're like, um, they decide that the, the memory might be within them because that's what the Buddha says. So they're going to have a meditation sequence. And Zach Galifianakis goes, has a vision. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, like, like every summer blockbuster, a good meditation sequence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like if I wish that Megan Fox was doing that instead of what else she was doing in those Transformers movies. Um, no, I shouldn't say that. I didn't even see Transformers 2. What am I even talking about? That was an easy joke, and I apologize for it. I, you guys deserve better. But the main thing is that Zach Galifianakis goes through in his head a quick flashback of all the events in the movie, except for no reason that's articulated. All the characters are children. Right? Like, they're all kids who look like the adult actors. And the, the implication is that, like, 
Zach uh, Allen, Zach Galifianakis' character, like, sees himself as a, as a child and thus, like, sees other people who are his peers, like, also as children, right? Um, do you remember this moment, Matt? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was kind of intrigued. I was kind of intrigued by it. Like, what, you know, what did it mean that, that his sense, I mean, he's kind of delving into his memory. This is his sense of who they are and, and what they are doing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like he this is just the way he sees the world and it's 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 fun because you know he lives with his parents and and he's like very spoiled and and he's he's very like he has a huge sense of entitlement about the things that he wants that's very childlike, right? You know, like he sort of is like, "Okay, I'm going to speak at the rehearsal dinner of the wedding now because I brought no cards and and it's my turn even though I wasn't really invited." Like that sort of thing. Like he just has this childlike like view of the world and it was so cool to see from his perspective how everybody was children and and I think to me, it's, it felt very similar to the scenes in Crank 2 where they jump outside of the, of the box and they show the fight happening between the main characters as a fight between, like, rubber-suited Godzilla characters, right? Where they actually do in one of the Crank 2 sequences because it's like we're acknowledging that this thing that is happening is this cinematic phenomenon and it, like – it exists on multiple levels and there's multiple antecedents for how it's seen. And like, this is our sort of impressionistic way of, of, of showing you what is actually there. Right. Um, or what the fullness of perception in a way that representation can't really do, do justice. But what I was saying is that it's funny because we're finding out something that we already knew about Alan and, and, but we, we only sort of knew it and it's being confirmed for us and he's okay with it. And this makes us feel better because Alan is still there and like Alan still exists and we're reconfirmed with the Alan that we already knew, despite the fact that the fact that, that Alan has woken up with no memory and has his head shaved, like threatens the existence of Alan and threatens the cogency of Alan. Uh, and like part of the comedy of the hangover is resolving this cogency of identity, uh, in the, in the face of this, of this losing of it, which is, I think, supposed to comfort us in the prospect of losing ourselves in marriage and losing ourselves in not, a, not necessarily adulthood in a general sense, but I think very specifically like getting married as dudes, um, which is like a big threat to ourselves, I think, because this is like a, the way that masculinity is defined. Yep. Getting married as dudes is a threat to the very institution of marriage, <laughs> sir. Yeah. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Like, that's very yeah. true. Boilerplate, Touché, not sir. something I actually believe. Yeah. So oh, no, I understand. He's, um... Thanks for the reach around on that joke, by the way. I do No problem. Man. <laughs> <laughs> that's me showing I love you, Petey. Ah, uh, definitely. But then if they remain children each time, if their identity remains the same, they find it again, and it's like, yep, still the same. Are they doomed to do this forever? Is there kind of an eternal recurrence of hangover after hangover after hangover? I mean, apart from the film franchise, inevitably, but, you know, for these characters, it's, uh, is the it's... next time they're invited to one of the bachelor parties of whoever's next getting married, they're just going to do it again because they are never going to be kind of free of whatever it is is in them that compels them to go on these yeah. crazy it's it's, hang, it's hangovers all the way down yeah honestly <laughs> i disagree with the idea this is a coming of age movie for specifically that reason because they don't leave childhood and venture into adulthood um they they embrace the thing that is seen as childhood and it's like they need well, to make sure. and, the, and actually it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's, it's the failed coming of age right it, it's the confederacy of dunces plot line right where it, it's a common tragedy in that you, you kind of want things to change for them, but because it's forced within the constraints of it being comedy, you know it has to return to the original scenario that, that it started with, right? And, and in that, you know, generates a tragic moment. 
I mean, I would even say that the genre requirement that these that people change and have an arc in the, over the course of the movie is something that is it is restricting, and that uh, in certain ways comedy can be honest, more honest than drama is about what it's like to be a human because people don't always change in response to circumstances. And, yeah, but the, the, and, um, the change that happens in the movie is less is less kind of a change having to do with being domesticated and kind of entering a. Um, I, the, the phrase wolf pack is used, you know, mm-hmm. to describe the, I mean, it's used by Zach Galifianakis to describe the, the male friendship, the kind of bond that is characteristic of, uh, the adventures that they have in the hangover and the hangover part two. So the, um, you know, the, uh, d- rather than being about kind of leaving behind a, a single gender, um, you know, domain and entering a, uh, an adult you know, man, woman, dyad. This is a movie. Even even what changes in the movie is that he's able to stand up to his father-in-law. So that you know, even the the kind of coming of age, such as it is, or the change in his character, is mediated through this um, this hot man-on-man dynamic. Uh, <laughs> Which is a theme throughout the movie. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's exactly. I mean, it's like the 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 women are are kind of incidental uh, to the um, to the film, and actually, like even the woman that you thought he was cheating on his wife with. Turns out to be a tranny hooker, and which for some reason makes it okay, which is kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> it's really, it's 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 wow. the Glenn Gary Glenn Ross of buddy comedies, really. Well, I was like, I mean, the the movie could have gone all crying game at that point, and and but his his reaction is played for laughs. The fact that yeah. he, you know what I mean, that he had sex with this, um, uh, with this transvestite is n- not. Like it doesn't sort of ruin him for marriage. It doesn't. It doesn't sort of ruin him. I don't know. Like kinder. You know. I don't know. This is part of a larger scale social change. I think yeah. in in our culture. But but uh, it, it's it's maybe a little sad to say that the Hangover Part Two is a harbinger of that. But there you go. Um, well, it's also notable because the the Hangover movies put forward Mike Tyson as this thing to be admired. Um, right, as this thing to sort of be in awe of and this think is impressive. And of course, Mike Tyson is a rapist and a brutal human being. I mean, you know, and he's done all these things that would normally lead us to condemn him and think that he's not somebody that is worthy of being put on a pedestal in this way. Um, so, yeah, there is, a, there is a way in which the movies do really do more than even forgive, but like really kind of embrace this sinister aspect. Uh, it's almost like a, a Blakeian idea of hell, where like hell is energy, not badness. Right, and it's like um, that sort of idea that there's this like sinfulness that's necessary and that's part of existence, I guess. Although I will bring up one other thing, and this is interesting because the movie is also uh, and the 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 tranny hooker stuff is important because the movie has a, a number of references to people who are very prejudiced, like both uh, identity politically wise and across race and across um, you know sexual orientation and all sorts of stuff. Like there's a really jarring joke really early in the movie that I feel like needs to be mentioned. Um, do you know which one I'm talking about, Matt? No, not off the top of my head. It's the one where Zach Galifianakis hates the, the Thai kid because he sees him as an interloper into his relationship with his friends, right? Because the wife's brother is going to be going with them to the bachelor party, and Jack Galf- Zach Galifianakis doesn't want him to be there because Zach Galifianakis has, has his friends, and he's very covetous of their time. Um, and, he, and he's like, the kid is like a 16-year-old, and he's in medical school. And he's like, oh, do you ever hear of Doogie Howser? 
He's like, yeah, I heard you guys are like, yeah, he grew up to be a gay or something like that, right? He calls him like a gay. He calls Neil Patrick Harris like a gay in the movie. Which is, um, out of, oh, yeah, now I remember. And then he says, I read about it in Teen People is what he says after it, <laughs> which um, takes a little bit of the pressure off it. But I felt like that was really interesting. And, and, uh, and um, Chow constantly refers to people as N-bombs um, throughout the movie, which is played for laughs because none of them are actually black. Uh, so one of them is North African. That's, that's what really makes, makes the N-word funny. Is when yeah. no, no one using it is black. Definitely. Well, I think that I don't know. Which, I mean, which is, maybe which is why the the nineteenth century is so funny. <laughs> well, I, I think that. Um, but I think that what this struck for me is that I think this reinforces this idea that people are trying to nail down other people's identities relative to themselves, right? And and everybody is trying to sort of define themselves into the place where they want to be by categorizing and, and describing everybody else. And this is and Bangkok is the place where you go where all these things d- dissolve and your ability to hold on to differentiation uh, leaves. And in this case, Bangkok is sort of standing in for the woods, uh, you know. Yeah, the woods, like in the Stephen Sondheim musical, the, the, exactly the, the, into the, the woods. Forest of Arden. Well, yeah, it was, it was the Forest of Arden was the one that I was thinking of. Oh, the, yeah, 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 or the That's woods right. in in Midsummer Night's Dream, or I mean, the Forest yeah. of Arden is in uh, what? As you like it, as you, you know, like it. Yeah. yeah, any any of these, like you or know. James Woods. <laughs> Everything is just crazy. It's Fantasia. Enter James Woods. <laughs> Into James Woods. Into James Woods. And out of James, Woods. James Woods. Out of James Woods. And home before the morning. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I saw a version of uh, and home before shark. <laughs> I used to like that show. I yeah, it was, it, anyway. was not, it was not a bad show. The first season. Oh, I thought you were like, going to say that I used to like the Woods by Sondheim, and I was like, why? <laughs> Um, I saw a version of As You Like It that featured a live rabbit, well, not live, but a real rabbit skinning uh, on stage just randomly in the middle of the action. So maybe that whole kind of pig carcass thing is uh, actually older than The Hangover. Um, what I was... <laughs> I'm going to go on stage during someone else's play and skin an animal. And exactly. Everybody. exactly. The guy was like a butcher. He wasn't even an actor. You know, pro butcher from somewhere nearby. Anyhow, Bro, I was going to... Not one of those amateurs. None of, none, none of this, this dinner theater regional butchery for you, people. Except, I don't know, I mean, man. I prefer amateur butchers because, like, you know, if there's not as much Photoshopping. And, uh... <laughs> yeah, it's, um, in, my, in my town growing up, there was a, there was a tattoo parlor that opened up. And uh, they had this sign in the front that said, uh, Tattoos by Apprentice Free. And, and we... <laughs> I remember, like, I never stepped foot inside the place, but I remember, like, knowing that this apprentice had suddenly, like, increased in skill because about six months thereafter it said, tattoos by apprentice, half price. It's like, all right, kids, the kid's really coming into his own. Uh-huh. I, like, uh, I like Gonzo Butchers, which is where on screen, <laughs> on screen you just see a cleaver and you yeah. wax things. Or where you're killing Gonzo. You're dividing and eating Gonzo. <laughs> Goes well with chicken, by the way. <laughs> Tim, what was Tim, you trying you to say talking? something before okay, we went I, off I, I this was, whole tangent? Well, I, I was going to ask a question again, I guess, because uh, I was going to ask: Does the Hangover re- reinforce a sort of sexist idea that suggests that men are still like the childlike gender? They are the animalistic gender. They are the ones that are kind of closer to being wild. They need to be tamed, and by entering into marriage they remain kind of children and so you know you get all these kind of stereotypes about how a wife is the mother of her husband and if she has children her children is the hangover kind of perpetuating that because it sounds like even in its motifs it's got like you know the wild animals the tiger and the monkey in uh, 
Hangover Part 2, that it's suggesting this parallel between men and children and men and animals and their uncontrollability. So that's why they like Tyson, is because he's sort of animalistic. And I, I guess... No, I mean, that makes sense. I think yeah, the, yeah. One, the, one of the ways The Hangover kind of avoids this is that the, the women just aren't present. Yeah, it was for most the, of the, the women are not denigrated so much as they are irrelevant. Well, no, he's talking about the men being denigrated, like men being framed as incapable of being adults and needing to be, like, mothered um, by women because it's the old – I'll refer to it as, like, the cable TV commercial narrative where, like, the doddering fat man wanders out and is like, I want to watch sports and I can't watch it on cable. And then, like, the wife comes out and is like, I hate you and our marriage is a sham. And then it's like, I You guys have all seen this commercial, right? I might be oh, times. Under, yeah. under many guises. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm a wife, and you're a, a laughing stock, and like you should pay sixty nine ninety five for cable every month. No, I mean I think that you're right in the sense that okay, so if there were not already a prevailing narrative that did what you suggested, the Hangover would not present it by itself, right? Because the Hangover doesn't have those kinds of relationships. Bradley Cooper's character is happily married in both Hangover movies and is like totally fine with just going out drinking and watching, looking at strippers, right? And it's like his wife doesn't stop him. There's no scene where Bradley Cooper's wife is like, Bradley Cooper, you come home this instant because you're not allowed to be doing this stuff, right? The implication is more like everyone wants them to be safe, right? And they don't want them to be like, they want them to be at the wedding on time. They want them to meet that obligation. Um, yeah, I mean, this this may be this may be uh, you know pointing out a relationship that the movie is trying to have with its audience, right? And and one of the things that's sort of um, phenomenological about the the Hangover, at least the first Hangover movie, and I'm presuming you know the second part to it, is that uh, I think it has popularity because it's one of these sort of bad boy comedies that has a huge female following. And you might argue that it's it's both sort of enforcing the stereotype as Tim outlined it, and also playing into it for the female audience members' enjoyment. Like the women can sort of watch it and be like, yeah, you know, we really are the superior gender. You know, we don't go out and do all this ridiculous stuff. I don't know. I mean, I, I think secret deep down, although they never really tell us, women like men. Um, and I like seeing men in their own element. What? Yeah, no, that's right. But but women also, you know, women also enjoy, or, or to a certain degree, a certain fraction of the female populace probably likes the idea of being thought of as the more mature, more responsible, more intelligent of the two genders. Right, 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 um, right. And, and can, can sort of use this to comedic effect. Yeah. I mean, there's also the phenomenon of, like, the, the bad, the bad, like, if we talk about the narrative of, like, the bad boy who gets married, and then the wife changes him into a milksop, and then, like, the Nathan Detroit character, right? right? Like, they, we look at that cable commercial that happens all the time, where it's like, I'm going to have sex with the gardener, buy cable. Um, no, wait, no. There's <laughs> <laughs> so much, like... What kind like, of cable? <laughs> what? Comcast. Why not? What else? Um, no, I don't have a choice. <laughs> that's all that matters. Um, but I, I think that I wonder whether I wonder whether that's the reason that why it's popular with women because they feel this sort of superiority over the men, or whether maybe like in the in the context of the narrative where men are being stripped of this quality, like like women do kind of not buy into the idea that it needs to be removed, and they kind of like it. Right, and they like this side of men, and they want to see this side of men, and that like um, maybe it's maybe it, I mean it's framed in the same dialectic. So I guess one argument would be the fact whether it's pro or con isn't really as important as the fact that it's being presented. Right, like that's kind of like the Foucault argument. Right, is like. Um, 
you know, if, if it's being presented that men are children and we like them or are children and we don't like them, it doesn't matter whether that's a good or bad thing as much as like the underlying narrative that, that men are children. Sort of like the Victorian notion of sexuality being this powerful thing, whether you think you've got it conquered or not, like it's still there and everyone's obsessed with it. Um, you're not, by repressing something, you don't erase its influence on you. Um, you just sort of participate. So, so we're back to Freud. It's cool. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, where it's like, I mean, that's interesting. I, I, I think that I'd love to hear from some women who are listeners to the podcast if we haven't scared them away with our very <laughs> bad behavior. Um, and, they, and they're like, because I know, I think if you were men just acting like jerk offs, like, then women wouldn't want to watch it. If it were just like a Meatballs movie, right? Not to be too mean to Meatballs, but this were like a latter day Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> Right, if it's like, oh, the Alpha Beta Boys and us are going to compete in a cheerleader contest. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have cursed like that. Uh-huh. But it's like, no one wants to watch that movie. Chili it's like, oh, what? I said Chili Peppers again. It's a reflex. You can bleep that out. Please bleep that out. <laughs> Please bleep it out. It was, but it's like that. Nobody, no women. The only people who want to watch that movie are like 15 year old boys because there's 90 seconds of bare breasts in it. Like that's the only people who actually want to watch that movie. Wait, wait, where um, is that movie? I want to download it. <laughs> <laughs> But like this isn't one of the this isn't like the guys from Porky's, you know, like get married, right? Because that was called Porky's Get Gets Married or whatever. I, I, thought, I thought that was called Grown Ups. Grown up, yeah, exactly. This isn't right. like I don't think this is like that. I feel like they're confronting the reality of who they are in a little bit more of a robust way. But maybe I like the movie and I want to stand up for it. I'm not sure. Um, maybe it's that I also, by the way, if I ever needed a reason to hate the women in this movie, I have a much better reason to hate the women in this movie than anything that they do in terms of cultural dialogue, which is that the Ed Helms' wife-to-be in this movie is played by Chi-Chi from the Dragon Ball Abomination uh, movie. <laughs> like, the love interest from that horrible live-action Dragon Ball Z movie that came out two years ago is Ed Helms' uh, lady. And I'm like, where have I seen her? Oh, God, she's horrible. Um uh, <laughs> This movie not her fault. I mean, it's not her fault, not at all. It, this movie forced you yes to, to, to confront. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, Tim. Go on. No, I was just going to say it kind of is her fault if she said yes to doing it. I suppose. Uh, you know, this movie made you confront your own personal demons, Pete. Right? You had this sort of lost memory, like how do I know her face? It's like, yeah. oh god, <laughs> this horrific experience that I lived several years ago and it yeah. tried to move past. We should make a YouTube video of, like, somebody who watched Dragon Ball Abomination or Dragon Ball Evolution and, like, doesn't remember it and has to go back and watch it and, like, realizes that he doesn't want to. It's like, I, this is what we call a sunk – it's called the sunk cost is what it's called. And it's like, well, wow. We'll move forward from our li- in our lives in the best way possible. So, um, but, yeah, definitely. I, I, I do feel that uh, we are fortunate that when I wake up tomorrow – you know, hungover with tiredness rather than alcohol because I haven't been drinking through the podcast. I don't know about you guys. Now, there was no announcement at the start, like on the Hot Dog Network this time. Anyway, uh, I, I can just download the podcast and listen to it and just be like, oh, well, that saves me having to retrace my steps. Yeah, exactly. You have a record of what happened when you were... You <laughs> it's watched. a perfect-ish record. You know, definitely. definitely. Not. Not sure if they just... It's still, it brings up the existential paradox, right? Like, you know, the Hangover series could just be, like, a protracted retelling of, of the Dark City story. You know, like, they're, they're actually never living any of these debacles. They're just, as they go to sleep, these memories are implanted in their brains. And the reiteration of it is meant to try and derive at some sort of, you know, some sort of conclusion about the nature of the human soul. Yeah, well, and it's like... like- yeah, yeah, that's yeah, exactly. right. Yeah, exactly. Oh man. By the way, um, one, I don't know um, whether we're we're easing on towards the end slowly but surely. But I will bring up one more thing, which I might write an article about at some point in the next couple of weeks. Which is that there's a couple moments where this movie does something really strange. 
which is that it plays Billy Joel songs. <laughs> and it plays specific Billy Joel songs. But there's specific songs. There's a bunch of musical cues in this movie that are really interesting. Um, and I'd love to hear people's opinion on it. Uh, because they are generally – there's a number of songs. There's two songs. There's two musical the songs I'm thinking about. Um, the songs basically introduce the idea of place. Right, both the songs when they happen are usually when you're entering into a new location and they're playing dramatic music as you like enter the location, right? And they're trying to set the set the stage. So when they get on the plane to fly to Thailand to go to the wedding, for some reason I don't understand, they play the Downeaster Alexa by Billy Joel, like the song about wow. like being a fisherman in Long Island and like losing album. What? Off of the Stormfront album, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's all about like, okay, I can't afford to feed my family anymore as a fisherman. I have to go out in my boat and do my best, right? <laughs> like, and this like, kind of is awful. And then there's another – there's a diegetic scene about two-thirds of the way through. Well, I'm, while not sure that that, I'm not sure that that first one isn't diegetic because it's sort of implied – the sound cue starts when Zach Galifianakis puts his headphones on. And so <gasps> it's kind of implied that, that – that that is what he is listening to, though there's a bit of compression of time because it cuts it cuts to the uh, it cuts to later in the flight and he's still listening to it and it's the same song on the thing. But like yeah, it's, it's like that's what's on his iPod. See, that's really that's exciting. That's really interesting because later in the movie, um, there's a there's a scene with a speedboat and Zach Galifianakis has to r- drive the speedboat and they're like, "Do you know how to drive a speedboat?" And this is like when things are starting to wrap up and he goes like, "Yeah, I was like raised at yacht clubs, right." <laughs> So it's like just as everybody is kind of coming around and everything is going to be okay, like Zach Galifianakis remembers the fact that he loves boats, which is one of the first things you establish about him because he's listening to the Billy Joel song about boats when he gets on the plane, which is not explained in context at the time. And I thought that was a really cool echo. Um, that, 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 that there's, I mean, I had not remembered that it was diegetic. I just thought it's cool that he mentions yachts at the end, and there's this sort of like yacht rockish song about economic difficulty. <laughs> at the beginning <laughs> and then there's there's another even more deep more directly diegetic song in the middle where ed helms fa- somehow gets an acoustic guitar and sings and plays his own version of the song allentown by billy joel yeah. wow um, I mean, yeah. it's amazing it's, it's amazing that like, there are two billy joel songs about economic collapse too yeah yeah right? about, but it's, it's not like scenes from an italian restaurant and captain jack no, <laughs> both of which would have probably been more been very well in this movie. Definitely, I think they both um, would have been right. You know, yeah, exactly, um, exactly. Except what do you think is the bolt? I, I think what, what, Captain what Jack is... might have been in the new parts of the Caribbean movie. You know, mermaid singing it or something. Oh, you guys have to hear that Michael. Watch that Lonely Island Michael Bolton video if you haven't watched it. It's the funniest thing. The yeah, song it's, is called it's, Jack. It's worth it. What? You know, what do you think is a bolder move, though? Like having diegetic Billy Joel or having non diegetic Billy Joel? Just for no reason during like a training montage, having like She's Always a Woman to Me playing. <laughs> I was thinking of cybernetic cryogenic Billy Joel, but diegetic Billy Joel will do just fine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> He's one of the, the, the eight classical Grecian Billy Joels, right? Exactly. Like Ionian <laughs> Billy Joel and Phrygian <laughs> Billy Joel. He's the, the, the later. Mm-hmm. Well, I think diegetic Billy Joel makes a lot of sense. Uh, and wow, that, that really fell oh, on silence. Oh, sorry. I, I was saying that uh, maybe that cybernetic Billy Joel might be the love child of a Terminator. Oh, no. Oh, oh don't get us started. <laughs> <laughs> God, man. I am looking for Mrs. Joel. Because I need to with a robot baby from the future. He's had a very stormy uh, marital history. I should say, like, uh, you know, just 
boilerplate. I'm from Long Island, so I was forced at gunpoint to um, to celebrate the complete album collection of Billy Joel from an early age. Uh, not actually a fan, except in the legal sense. We call him the Springsteen of the East. <laughs> That's right. New Jersey. <laughs> He's the, he's, the spring, he's the Springsteen of the other side of the Holland Tunnel. Exactly, exactly. But yeah. But it is interesting because I, like I like diegetic Billy Joel because Billy Joel is a, a guy who people have sing, sing along with and remember, right? Like a lot of his songs uh, are, are most notable in context. They're not notable because you want to listen to them now. They're notable because you listened to them at some point in the past or you sung along with them at some point in the past, right? Or they like reflect a, a cultural moment when it was really popular and it really isn't right now. At some point, Billy Joel will get rediscovered and it's like, wow, Billy Joel's really awesome. And everybody will think Billy Joel's the best and all the kids will be like listening to – um, it's always a woman to me, and I'm, they want to. They're going to ask why they're going to the extremes all the time and stuff. But until that <laughs> inevitable day, uh, <laughs> um, it, it's like Billy Joel is this like artifact. And so when people sing Billy Joel or listen to Billy Joel, it raises the question of what were they doing when they first heard this song, and why why is that happening now? Like, what are we rec- recalling? And I guess with Ed Helms, he's you can envision the younger Ed Helms like playing the acoustic guitar for some lady at a party, right? Or like being a teenager and like you know trying to like be soulful in college, like long hair, blues, and all that other stuff, right? Like playing Allentown on the acoustic guitar, and that sort of you can I can't imagine like a straight laced dentist Billy Joel. Um, although he would be listening to Allentown in the dentist office, yeah. because Billy Joel is good dentist music. But once is, again, is he's that... trying to remember. He's trying to get back that lost past yeah, yeah, again. Yeah. Mm. Okay, yeah. I mean, a couple, a couple other music cues that that were a little interesting. One, the other sing along that happens is in the elevator, where you would expect a girl from Ipanema. It's actually yeah. it's Jim Croce's uh, "Time in a Bottle." You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, the other one is uh, Johnny. They when they wake up first from from their night of debauchery, uh, the the sound cue is um, is Johnny Cash. It's the Beast in Me. You know, yeah, it's, it's yeah. caged by frail and fragile bars. And I, I, you know, I was listening to that and I thought, frail and fragile bars. That's a, like frail bars. In what sense are the bars frail? That's that's probably it's kind of a weak lyric. It's not his best. Let's say you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Man, you're harsh. You're you're ragging on on Johnny Cash, the Man in Black, dude. But yeah, but I mean, and there's also there's also this. Um, Oh, I keep forgetting the woman's name, but she's a scion of Little Wayne, and there's this really aggressive uh, rap track that jumps in uh, right when the, when the crazy ha- hangover time lapse is happening, when we like jump forward through the ridiculousness, um, and that's another interesting sound cue. But yeah, but they they're all about yeah. I don't know the time in a bottle one that was like sad. Like I heard that and it made me think about like you know the the things the existential side of this movie. Um, it may you know it's it's because it's about you know the transience of all it, things yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, exactly. not not being able to hold on to time right yep well, not being in it which you know you can't remember the fun time you had last night yeah um, well, sure but there's i mean that's kind of desperate memory like we have to remember in in order for the the in order to get something that we need um but the other one is like you know 20 years from now or the function of the the uh cell phone camera in remembering like um mm. these are you know these are the good times it, it turns out that zach galifianakis has plastered his room at his parents house with the photos from the credit sequence of the first hangover movie that were supposed yeah. to be destroyed and he uh, you know what i mean and like that is sad like the the idea that like you live surrounded by these moments that yeah. uh 
you know, that were kind of the high points of your life, but that you, yeah. that you can't sort of recapture, you know? And also with, like, like old-school, really ridiculous 80s WWF posters, um, <laughs> which is really funny. Because it's like a bunch of, like, it's like Ravishing Rick Rude is, like, on the back of his door. Although it might, I think it was Ravishing. If I actually got that right, I'm going to pat myself on the back. But, um, <laughs> but there's, like, a variety of quick pans of, like, really, and it's funny because he's, he's like, expresses homophobia on a number of occasions, and yet, like, is, 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 very homoerotic in a lot of ways uh, well, throughout that, the that, 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 that's that's science for you you know higher homophobia <laughs> usually indicates higher homosexuality or tendencies towards um and i think a pretty linear um correlation Mm-mm-mm. although don't quote me on that look up the actual research on google scholar because you know this is the overthinking <laughs> podcast don't just google search Google Scholar search. <laughs> Don't just Google, <laughs> Google Scholar. Well, if, if you want to Google Scholar anything we said and well actually us into submission, uh, we will happily submit. You can email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com or call 203-285-6401. Uh, follow us on the internets, on the Twitters, uh, at overthinkingit. And uh, until next week, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve If I could save time in a bottle So like, uh, how great would it be if a beer commercial We've talked about like beer commercials, uh you know, tell you about how you turn into the real person that you are when you're drunk on, on that kind of beer. Like how great would a beer commercial be if it told you about how, like once you drink it, um, you start organizing this underground bare knuckle boxing club where people can like free themselves <laughs> of like the shackles of the modern world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That Tyler, Tyler Durden drinks butt ice. <laughs>